Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Tinder, the world's most downloaded dating app, turns 10 next month. And we want to hear from you. Have you tried Tinder? Did it help you start a relationship? Or did you find using the app was a relationship itself? Apps have deeply affected the way we think about dating, sex, and love. So what have you learned over a decade of swiping right? Tell us on Forum after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. When Tinder launched on an L.A. college campus in 2012, few knew how popular it would become. According to the dating app's website, it's now been downloaded more than 500 million times across 190 countries, making billions of matches along the way. Like this one. Here's one of the voicemails we got before the show. Five years ago, I used Tinder as my main dating app. I thought it was the most straightforward And I liked that people didn't write novels about themselves. So when you met them, you were able to get a sense for how they really are without having too many expectations. And I went on a date with a man and we have been together for five years. We were supposed to get married. Um, But then the pandemic happened. So that is still on hold that we had our first child. Last August, he just turned one year old, and I feel like we are a tender success story. Oh, thank you for sharing that, listener. Tinder, more than just making it easier to meet people, it's been credited with changing the way we date. For better or for worse, you tell us. We want to hear your reflections about Tinder listeners. You can post them on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at KQED Forum. You can call us 866-733-6786, or you can email forum at kqed.org. And of course, a quick warning, sex will likely come up in this conversation, so there you go. Let me tell you who is joining us first. Emily Witt is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love. Emily Witt, thanks so much for being on Forum. Hi, Mina. Hi. Do you remember, Emily, when you first used Tinder and what you thought of it? Yeah, I downloaded it, I want to say, in 2014. They had a kind of slow rollout, and it didn't reach general audiences for a little while. 
And at the time I was in my early 30s and it was a young crowd. I mean, when I first downloaded it, I went on and there were not very many people my age on it, which kind of surprised me, actually. Yeah, I think the website says now that more than half of its members are between the ages of 18 and 25. Mm -hmm. But it kind of makes sense. Like before Tinder, it was online dating, not mobile phone based app dating, basically, like OkCupid, there was Match.com. And and those actually struggled to attract young people. Why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, those apps, um, I think, I think it, they had just started to migrate to smartphones when Tinder launched. But Tinder's founders were young, they were um, in their early 20s. And they launched the app on college campuses with a with a college aged audience in mind, I think. And they never, um, it, it was never a website, it was always strictly on your phone. You always used your real name. It had a very casual feeling to it. So it didn't maybe have a feeling of, it wasn't as mannered maybe as the older ones. And it was so easy to download. It was free and and it caught on. Yeah. Do you think that those online sites were viewed, as some people have said, as sort of people who are finding it harder to meet because it was later in life when there were fewer opportunities on like during college? Yeah, I think it was just, you know, a young person might not yet have a concept of what it's like, for example, to be a, a divorced single parent looking for a date. It's it's just a different stage of life where maybe you have a very vivid, avid kind of social life already. But, um, you know, what what Tinder offered in some ways was a way to actually approach people that you might already know in the beginning. Yeah. So talk about how, how Tinder worked that was so different it's sort of user interface and why that was such a big deal well yeah i mean the main revolution on tinder that was quickly adopted by everybody else was the swipe um you just swiped left if you didn't like somebody and you swiped right if you liked them and the other thing that they did was what they called the double opt-in so two people had to like each other uh to form a match and start messaging and I think that took out a layer of, I don't know, shyness, where maybe there's somebody you've seen around campus that you had a little crush on, but you were too nervous to approach them. And now you had this kind of little filter to make sure that there was some mutual interest before you began talking to them. Right. Well, you didn't have to approach anyone and potentially be rejected. You knew that they were interested, too. They swiped right on you as well. Do you remember what it felt like when you would get a match? I mean, it felt great, you know, a little dopamine hit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, did you actually want to talk to them was the next question. <laughs> right, right. That just meant that you could start, uh, you could start texting or communicating with each other online and stuff. So, mm-hmm. um, well, let me bring another person into the conversation, Jesus G. Smith, Assistant Professor of Ethnic Studies at Lawrence University. Jesus, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm so excited. Well, I'm glad you're here. And I understand that you use Tinder and you've also used Grindr. And is it fair to say, this is what I've heard, that there wouldn't be Tinder without Grindr? <laughs> I love that, actually. You know, um, <laughs> I think it, I, I feel like it is fair to say because even like the swiping aspect, it made me think of Hornet, which is a, another gay dating app. And I just think about uh, gay dating apps and um 
you know, gay dating websites that have been around for a long time as, uh, as queer folks have been using these apps and being and using these websites for a long time or what were much more like um, accepting of them, you know? And so therefore, I think a lot of the revolutions we started to see were largely influenced a lot by what was successful in gay spaces. So I think about, you know, Grindr and how it was like, oh, wow, this person you're talking to is only 400 feet away, something like that. That's something that starts to trickle on to other websites and also other apps and starts to influence uh, other spaces in different ways as well. Yeah, right. So technologically, it it helped with the sort of location, um, the location data that it would share. So you knew who was around you. But you also talk, it sounds like, about its influence. What kind of influences do you think it had on Tinder and the people who used it? Like it was called for a while, uh, Grinder for straight people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I think its influence again kind of goes, you know, several of these apps and several of these websites were again influenced by these queer pioneers. So I'm thinking again with my early work on Adam for Adam, which eventually switched into a mobile based app called um that was very similar to Grinder, And with these apps, it was, again, you get to see locations, where people are. You get to uh, express yourself in particular ways. It also influenced kind of, I think, the idea that, you know, hookup culture could be something that was kind of embraced, you know, for... Mm -hmm gay men for a long time kind of because of structural issues like shame and threats of violence and not having as many gay men that you could meet and connect with hookup culture took a hold very quickly and it was about you know kind of quick hookups that were safe and sane and kind of happen kind of quickly and you move on with your life that that makes a lot of sense in queer spaces but I think straight spaces started to embrace this idea a little more too of kind of the no strings attached sex right that it very much is the modern day kind of equivalent. So we're kind of out there. We have a lot of work to do. We got stuff to get done. And so we might hop on Tinder and you might talk to some people and you might have a quick little hookup, something like that, or not something that's long-term. So I feel like in some ways that that sort of environment was uh, perpetuated on Grindr and you start to see it influence other spaces, especially Tinder. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like this is a positive development, right, Emily? Yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. It, it definitely had to be modified a little bit for a general audience. I mean, Grindr actually tried to launch a general interest dating app called Blender that was a huge non-starter um, because they, you know, women in particular just have specific concerns about safety and about how they're approached that, you know, the Grindr model had to be modified. and 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 so... It's interesting because Tinder, even though it took hold in the public imagination as a hookup app, its founders were very deliberate about not having sex in the messaging or in any of the language that you found on the app. And and in their public statements, they would say, oh, you can use it to look for activity partners and all this stuff because they were scared that um, women wouldn't use it if it was too sexually forward. Yeah. Well, Nancy tweet seems like it's only used for casual sex, which is fine if that's what you're looking for, not me. But it is much more than that. And I was struck, I don't remember who wrote this, but they said that Tinder basically showed the invisible reality of sex for pleasure that existed in heterosexual circles and for women. 
as well, which I think is interesting. And Emily, you've also talked about just having positive experiences on sex forward apps, right? Like Field and others. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, women are taught to, especially past a certain age, to think of yourself as kind of undesirable. And I think what what these apps remind us is that that's just not true. <laughs> and um, and it's a place where, as a woman, you might experience a little bit more power because there tend to be more men on the apps than women. And so you can be, you, you get a lot of attention. And even if it's not the attention that you want, or it's maybe even not from the people that you want, it, it's kind of, it can be a little affirming to get that um, message that you're desired and wanted. Yeah. And Jesus, do you think that dating apps or Tinder basically afforded people a certain amount of anonymity or or maybe like a clean slate is more appropriate so that there was more freedom to experiment? Like I remember with the other online dating websites, you had to answer tons of questions and it was very compatibility forward, basically. So there's a lot to know about you. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question because when I started on uh, Tinder and again in 2014 as well, um, you, I logged on I think through my Facebook profile. So that's a very public profile and a very uh, forward image that I was giving, where I felt like certain apps and certain online dating uh, spaces were much more um, allowed for more anonymity. But I do think, regardless, there's kind of this different persona that you can put forward onto tinder you know tinder like many apps they're there are spaces where you have love games, right? And so people play love games in different sorts of ways. And I think men and women do it in different sorts of ways. So you can put forward a particular image or present yourself in a, a particular way. And that kind of gets exchanged in the atmosphere in a particular way. All these sorts of things that I think are very possible in Tinder. Yeah, we are talking dating apps on the 10 year anniversary of Tinder that's going to happen next month. Stay with us for more after the break. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How?! You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Here's what we're talking about tomorrow. California has adopted rules that will ban the sale of new gas-powered cars by 2035. It's an effort to combat climate change, and we're curious what you think the impact will be. If you are ready to go all electric, or will you be hanging on to that gas-powered car as long as you can? You can tell us by leaving a voicemail, 415-553-3300, or email forum at kqed.org. 
This hour, we're looking at the impact of Tinder on our dating lives. The app launched on an L.A. college campus 10 years ago, on L.A. college campuses 10 years ago. It's transformed dating in many people's eyes. Uh, we're talking with Emily Witt about it. Emily is a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love, and Jesus Smith, assistant professor of ethnic studies at Lawrence University. And you, our listeners, are telling us how you feel about Tinder or what you think are its downsides. Have you stayed away from or deleted the app or why or what kinds of positive experiences have you had from swiping right? You can email forum at kqed.org. Tell us by posting on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram or by giving us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Pooja writes, when I first started dating, the mindset was that dating apps we're for the desperate. Today, I and many of my friends have met our partners on dating apps. I love that it normalizes being clear about what you're looking for in a relationship and making dating safer for women. Becky from Elsa Branty writes, in late 2014, out of an abundance of boredom, I decided to give Tinder a try. After a few weeks of connecting with some nice enough guys, I happened to swipe right on the man who I ended up marrying after a whirlwind six-month courtship. Nearly eight years later, we are both happier than anyone could expect to be with three beautiful kids and a house in the burbs, all thanks to a hookup app that I installed on a whim. Thanks, Tinder. And Emily tweets, I hate Tinder, but still have it. All right, I want to bring into the conversation now another person. Alina Liu is a clinical psychologist based in San Francisco. Alina, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm having you know, so I... much fun just listening in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we're really glad to have you joining this fun conversation. I had asked Emily earlier what it felt like when she would get a match, and Emily said that, you know, it was like a dopamine hit, right? Instant gratification. Mm -hmm. You've talked, you've looked at and heard from clients Um about just sort of how dating apps make them feel and what happens to the psyche with dating apps. That's a pretty common thing, right? And, and is that why they can be so addicting in some ways? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the process that happens in our mind when we're on dating apps is very similar um, to a lot of behavioral addictions. And behavioral addiction meaning that we're addicted to a behavior. We engage in the behavior repetitively to kind of alter how we feel in our mind, alter the emotion, right? So thinking about gambling addiction or video game addiction. Um, so what happens when we get a match on dating apps is that the brain's reward center kind of releases this huge hit of dopamine. Um, and sometimes that process is also amplified by the confetti effect, the sound visual effect you get on dating apps. Maybe you get a huge red bouncy heart, right? All the excitement, all those kind of added um, components are ways to get our mind engaged in the app. Um, and dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's responsible for a lot of important functions in our brain. It gets us to feel motivated, alert, and just overall this feel-good chemical. So think about when you're first in love, we think about our partners constantly, what they're doing, when we're going to see them again, um, when they're going to text us back. Right? It's almost in the form of intrusive thoughts. It's a way of getting us bonded to another person, um, connect with the person. Mm. Yeah. Have there been downsides to that that you've heard from clients? Yeah, I think sometimes people can get stuck in the dopamine loop. And I think I've heard people mentioning that earlier in the, um, in the, on the radio, right? Sometimes we can get stuck in the swiping left and right. Um, the purpose becomes to get matches and get that dopamine hit as opposed to fostering real connections and meeting people off the app. 
Well, Greg asks, never used Tinder or any dating app. My impression is that it's just a succession of pictures of faces which you efficiently run through and select from who looks physically most attractive. So all about instantaneous sexual attraction. Is there more to it than that? What do you think about that assessment, Alina Lu? I think in a lot of ways that's sort of accurate for Tinder. Um, I think that can bring out a lot of our implicit biases when we're swiping on those apps because how fast we're going. Um, and I think it also brings up the dilemma of choice abundance because we live in a society where we value having many choices. Going to the grocery store, you can easily find 10 different types of cereal. right? So I think essentially being on Tinder or on a dating app, it opens up to opens us up to a large dating pool. Um, but what research suggests is that when we have too many choices, it actually makes it harder to make accurate decisions or it makes it harder for us not to regret the decisions that we did make, partially because when we make decisions, it's not about the thing we chose. It's about processing the loss of the things that we didn't choose. Mm. Um, so what we see is when we have too many matches on dating apps, it tends to decrease our satisfaction of the matches that we did choose. That's interesting. Well, Jesus, first let me ask you the first part of what listener Greg wrote. When you are swiping, is it is it the way the person looks at is most important? Is that the main thing you look at? <laughs> <laughs> That's a fascinating uh, question. And honestly, I think it all it varies. And, and in some ways, I think um, it's gendered in a lot of different ways. So some research suggests that men, for instance, especially gay men, the, the population that I study are very visually focused. And so, yes, it can be very much a space that it's like, okay, what do you look like? Which perpetuates so many negative things. So we see a lot of gender inequity online. You'll see a lot of uh, racism and stuff like mm. that on these apps as it gets played out and again uh, as our biases get tapped into as well so yeah I, th I do think that can happen I think for others too it can be because you know again when I first started it was about you know our profiles and our best forward face and kind of your different pictures the things that you might set up it can be more as well too and so people who are interested uh, in long term relationships and connecting with folks can ma really make that connection um, Christian Lacope's work is really great on this as he compared Grindr and Tinder, for instance, and found that both uh, gay folks on Grindr and heterosexual people on Tinder are all looking for connections. They're all looking for conversation, really deep conversation. And it's just in the way that they engage in conversation that differs. Where Grindr might be a little shorter and quicker to sex, you're seeing a lot more deeper conversation and uh, more connection happening on Tinder. And that could be led by women largely. Mm, interesting. Well, Emily, one of the points that Jesus was just making there is something that I've heard about the dating app world, which is that it is, of course, a microcosm of society. And so all of its ills, its racism, its misogyny, that can really be amplified in sort of the app universe. Do you see that? And if so, why do you think that is? Yeah, I mean, that's statistically been documented and anecdotally, I, I definitely among my friends, I've heard I've heard complaints to that effect. And I, you know, I think it is, it's just like any other mode of online social interaction, it, it can bring out the kind of, as Jesus was saying, the kind of like quick, unthinking um, side of our, of our minds. And it's important maybe to go through a little bit slower than you might and sort of think about, you know, ask yourself whether you're giving people the time they deserve. And actually, a lot of apps have 
put now in systems to kind of reduce the number of people that you see every day, things like that, um, to kind of, I think, make sure that you're actually giving some deliberation. Yeah, that makes me wonder, like apps do make it easier to meet people. But Emily, do you think it makes it faster or more efficient at finding love? Well, I mean, look at all the people that have written in. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I think, you know, I, I'm, I try to be optimistic about these things. And, you know, there's been a demographic shift. People are getting married much later in life or not at all. You know, more people spend more years of their lives single. And in that in those times when you might not be in love with somebody, but you are looking for connection and you're looking for a sense of meaning and belonging, I think these apps can be really amazing at just kind of reminding you that there's a lot of other people out there in your same situation. You know, if you're at home alone and you're feeling kind of down, and especially during the pandemic, I think, you know, these apps were like lifelines for a lot of people. It just, even if you're just chatting with somebody that you're never going to meet, it's just a reminder that, that there's a lot of interesting, cool, single people out there that that, you know, you're not on your own in this situation. And especially if you just move to a new city or, you know, all your friends are married, you're in a phase of your life where you're the only single person in your social group, they really help you connect with other people like you out there, especially if you're in a big city. Yeah. So it sounds like in some ways, too, it's helpful to manage expectations when you're when you're on these and when you're seeing these sort of cascades of people um, who are potential matches well, let me go to Frank in Mill Valley. Hi, Frank. Hey, Mina. Uh, great topic. I'd like to, as a 66-year-old, uh, soon to be 67 in a week, a happy uh, survivor of Match.com, uh, married <laughs> 10 years married to somebody I met on that site. I'd like to speak to this issue of, of uh, connection versus uh, superficial. One of the things I really liked about Match.com, which I started, I think, back in 2009, something like that, was that you ended up it had a feeling of writing a 19th century letter to somebody you saw in church. It was, it was a level of communication that was impossible in the bars. And even though you quickly learned that you have to meet somebody, because you'll know in 45 seconds whether there's potential there, the, the interchange of billet doux was a, a revelation to me and a, and a, great, a great piece of the attraction was, was okay, I got a better sense of who you are than I would if I met you in a bar or someplace uh, noisy and casual. But anyway, good, great topic. Uh, well, Frank, I'm so glad to hear that it worked well for you. And also, happy birthday. That's, that's great. Uh, let I'm, me... I, I'm getting my cane. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for calling in, Frank. Uh, let me go next to Scott in Martinez. Hi, Scott. Yeah, hi there. Um, so... Um, my, my comment is pretty much the diametric to our, our friend Frank. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't really stand Tinder. Uh, lots of too, way too many fakes and bots, and that'll come into play in a second. And I actually got kicked off Tinder uh, after not really engaging hardly with anyone. And I was telling your screener, I've actually been, um, I'm proud to say, I've actually been kicked off uh, like five other major dating apps. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm a real, I, I'm a really nice guy. And, um, so I was just trying to figure out like what was going on. And a friend of mine who works for the app hinge, uh, was telling me that, um, if you, 
engage with a bot, which is inevitable um, on all of these apps, uh, and you say to them something to the effect of, I, I know that you're fake, I don't want to like engage with you anymore, Like they'll report you and you can get kicked off even though the app kind of, they, they essentially know that, that mm-hmm. a bot is reporting you. And then she also furthermore told me that these apps um, like, like talk to each other. So if you get you know, inadvertently kicked off one app, it's likely that you'll get kicked off of another. Yeah. And um, well, Scott, yeah, I'm just so, yeah, I'm just curious if, if has Jesus, have you heard that? That makes a lot of sense in some ways. Um, they're geosocial networks that definitely kind of cross networks and stuff like that. There are a lot of bots, and and here there's some work that's out there that's already explored the idea. Again, kind of going into these love games that happen on the apps, where men, for instance, create they'll kind of catfish as a way is as part of some of the love games that you might see take place on these apps, uh, figuring out or playing pranks on their friends and stuff like that. So that makes a lot of sense that you would see bots, especially a lot. We see that on Twitter. We see that in all sorts of geosocial spatial apps. So that doesn't surprise me. Again, Jesus is an assistant professor of ethnic studies at Lawrence University. Also, Emily Witt is with us, a staff writer at The New Yorker, and Alina Liu, a clinical psychologist in San Francisco. You, our listeners, are also sharing your experiences. What you like about Tinder? What are the downsides? Have you stayed away from or deleted the app? Why? And we're also curious if dating apps like Tinder has taught you something about yourself or, or what impact you think apps like Tinder have had on dating or single life. What are things that the app could do better? Let me go to caller Jackie in San Leandro. Hi, Jackie. Hi. I was sexually assaulted by someone that I met on Tinder, and I have many friends of all ages who have also been assaulted by people they've met on these apps. I found that perpetrators can lurk and do lurk on these apps with no consequences, and they can just disappear or ghost afterwards. And of course, the rape was pervasive, but um, before these apps, but in my experience, even if abusers are reported, these apps do nothing and just um, revert to, to to slogans for aesthetics like consent is sexy, but do not actually address harm. And this is all apps, not just Tinder. Oh, Jackie, I'm so sorry to hear that that happened to you. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, this has certainly been something that has been documented on apps before, uh, Alina Lou, I don't know if you have any thoughts about how these apps are trying to ensure or trying to help support either people who have survived assaults, but also trying to prevent them from happening in the first place. Yeah, I think there is certainly lacking this aspect. Um, what I've learned and I'm curious to learn from Jesus is that for Grinder, I think uh, periodically they will put out alerts or sort of reminders to the users um, in terms of safety precautions and um, sexual transmitted disease that might be um, going around to kind of help protect the community. Um, I'm not certainly aware if Tinder is doing anything um, in that front. And I do think um going back to kind of the wide range of stories that's been shared on this radio, I think people have very different experiences on those apps. And it kind of just once again reminds us that um, there are a lot of uncertainty that's embedded in those apps. Um, And it makes sense for us to be more cautious in adding filters and kind of layers of um, selection criteria before we decide to meet someone in person. Emily or Jesus, do you know anything about, about Tinder's efforts around this? I don't. Um, 
Yeah, I'm not up to date on that. I don't know, Jesus. What about you, Jesus? No, I don't. It, it is true that Grinder and kind of, the, again, these more uh, queer-based apps um, do do this work of, you know, protecting our communities. And I think that has a lot to do with just the differences in the socialization of queer people and LGBT folks uh, versus heterosexual folks, where I do think these apps and these spaces oftentimes are geared towards heterosexual men and heterosexual needs and how that can be so harmful to heterosexual women. And I think this is a prime example of that. And I do think much more work needs to go into these conversations. It's not uncommon to hear from friends and from other women who might get messages that are just direct, you know, WTF, things like, or DTF, something like that, mm. um, and immediately just looking for access and, and sex. And oftentimes it's lost on a lot of uh, heterosexual men or my friends, for instance, about the dangers and the risks that can uh, feel for, you know, or can feel like for women who are going through these sorts of experiences or who are getting those sorts of messages. So I think so much has to happen and it says so much about the way that men and women are so socialized and uh, in society and how that trickles down into the apps. Yeah, there's also been the point made that by by sort of being able to swipe through a screen that it can have a potentially dehumanizing effect. Do you think that that's that that's true, Alina? Yeah, I think because dating apps um, add additional layers of protection for us, um, kind of protecting us from social rejection or checking other people out or kind of filtering through them behind the safety of our, of our screen. And it makes it easier to kind of not have to be vulnerable in those conversations. And I imagine, rightfully so, it's very difficult to have the same personal conversation um, when you go on three, four, five dates a week. Um, so we might add filters to kind of engineer the perfect partner for ourselves. For example, you can filter through political beliefs, height, levels of education. But I think at the same time, it can also backfire by trapping us in this artificial bubble of safety, making it easy to kind of avoid having uncomfortable conversations, avoid meeting others who are very different from us. Um, and it's something I ask people is think about how you would describe your partner, right? Would you say, I love him or her because he's six feet tall or because he's a Democrat, right? How yeah. important are those filters in the well, long Well, we'll term? have more mm-hmm. after the break with you, Alina. Mm-hmm. I'm Mina Kim. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, we're looking back on a decade of swiping right and how Tinder and similar dating apps have changed the way that we think about love, sex, and relationships and how we interact with each other. And you, our listeners, are sharing your reflections on being on Tinder. If using the dating app taught you something about yourself or or about dating or single life and the impact that you think Tinder and other similar apps have had. Let me go to caller Dora in San Francisco. Hi, Dora. Hello. Hi. Go right Hello. ahead. You're on. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, yeah, I, personally, I've been using not only Tinder, but most of the dating app um, actually before pandemic and during pandemic. And now I've, I've been researching, like, I did a like, U.S. research on uh, dating apps for serious singles, especially for someone who wants, you know, serious relationships. And I find all the patterns and then figure out, okay, this is not really solving a problem here because um, all the dating apps so far, including Tinder, because the business model is all about, it's kind of like slot machine. They want you to keep swiping and keep matching. <laughs> so um, that's not really helping people to build real relationships. And I really got to hear, you know, all the talk from previous one saying that, you know, this really impacts our mental health, that you kind of always think, oh, what would be the next? So I, I heard another mm. user feedback saying it's kind of like uh, Amazon shopping cart, <laughs> but we cannot treat human like that. You know, it's not the mindset to really build a relationship. Yeah. And so, yeah. And then from that, I actually started a company and trying to solve this problem. Um, so, so I'm the CEO of Our Date, and we're trying to research on how do we get out of this swiping and slot machine business model, mm. because what? it's not healthy. You know, it's it's kind of like healthcare. We have preventative healthcare, but we don't have relationship care. And a lot of people, even they match, and then they go someone, and then maybe something doesn't fit fit them well, and then goodbye. So this kind of mindset really, uh, yeah, really toxic. Yeah. Well, well, Dora, good luck with your company. And thanks for the call. And listeners, if you want to also call 866-733-6786 is the number. You can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, our email address forum at kqed.org. And you can join the conversation we're having with Emily Witt, a staff writer at The New Yorker and author of Future Sex, A New Kind of Free Love, Jesus Smith, an assistant professor of ethnic studies at Lawrence University, and Alina Liu, a clinical psychologist based in San Francisco. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, Emily, and I've heard this term come up a couple times during the show, is ghosting. And some people have attributed the phenomenon of ghosting and ghosting happening a lot more often, in part because we are a little more detached when we're meeting somebody through a dating app. First, I'd be curious what your thoughts are, if you could just explain what ghosting is and what you think is the reason that <laughs> that has become part of our lexicon. Yeah, um, ghosting is when you've been exchanging messages with somebody or maybe you've even gone on a few dates with them and then they disappear and you never hear from them again. You don't get a rejection. You don't get any farewell. They just, they're gone and you're left on read as the expression goes. And it, it's, I, I think anybody who's experienced it knows how awful it feels. <laughs> and so it's kind of amazing how pervasive it is. And I think it comes from part of the fact, you know, on these 
apps, you're actually just meeting tons of people. And even when you're the person that is doing the rejecting, that can be difficult and exhausting and stressful and provoke anxiety in its own way. And some people just cannot do the right thing, which is to be like, hey, nice to meet you. I don't think it's a good fit. Bye. You know? can be that yeah. simple. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and I've heard the argument that it is kind of better sometimes to do it that way in the sense that you're not like nitpicking or maybe pointing out something that would make someone feel incredibly bad if you got super specific with your feedback. But I guess even the sorry, you know, you're you're amazing, but you know, just not the right person for me is also seem, seems to be something of the past as well in some cases um, that people would like to see changed. A couple more comments on Tinder. Ariana writes, I met my partner of six plus years on Tinder. I almost didn't swipe right on her because she seemed too sporty for me. But her last line was looking for the Troy to my Abed, which was a reference to my favorite show at the time, Community, which I couldn't ignore. We thank Tinder nearly every day because our paths likely would never have crossed in real life. Another listener tweets, as a single employed male, either I'm ugly or doing something wrong because I've had no luck meeting anyone and another listener tweets, I've heard so many negative stories from my female friends. It's just a revolving door of hookups. Okay, Cupid, Bumble, and Match have more real connections in my experience. Talk about Bumble really quick, if you could, Emily, um, just because it feels like one of the sort of offshoots of Tinder as opposed to OkCupid okay, or Match. Yeah, Bumble was started by Whitney Wolf, who was one of the founders of Tinder, but left in acrimonious circumstances and went on to found Bumble. And, you know, understood that one way to set a dating app apart is to take away a layer of decision. So the main difference with Bumble is the woman makes the first overture. And, um, and the company kind of advertised itself as a woman friendly environment. Mm. And they did that by doing things like banning bathroom mirror selfies and 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 yeah so i think in taking out a decision and who makes the first move it just gives a little more structure that can be really helpful to people well this listener writes and this is a bit long but ryan writes three years ago my partner and i opened our relationship of eight years and started using tinder for the first time i started dating a lot up to five or six dates per week i completely came out of my shell and realized i wasn't introverted and i could easily overcome my social anxiety this led to the mutually agreed mutually happy end of my relationship because i realized i couldn't be extroverted with my current partner Every person I met on Tinder during this time, probably 30 to 40 women over a year, was just wonderful. And many went on to second dates or to form relationships. Alina, I'm curious if you have heard this, that that it has helped people with social anxiety. It's helped people come out of their shells and realize that they can be extroverted, for example. Yeah, I've definitely heard that side of the story. Um, I think part of the good thing about dating apps or the more positive aspect is that it, it really kind of allows us to connect with others in a situation that doesn't have a lot of risk involved, right? If you are someone who's naturally shy or socially anxious, you can start by engaging online, just messaging each other, and then slowly kind of warm up to a video call or eventually meeting in person. I think that gradual process or having different options, having the choice can really help people with social anxiety. Well, let me go to caller Noel in Pleasanton. Hi, Noel. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, my my comment is actually very similar um, along the lines of what your guest was just saying, you know, starting with a video call and then going to in person. I, I met my now husband, um, embarrassingly for me, at a bar um, a long time ago. Um, we're not bar people, but we ended up talking on the phone um, for a month before meeting again. And I think that that really solidified um, an aspect of our relationship that became very meaningful beyond just the physical being, you know, physically present and taking the pressure off of sort of that physical presence, but also giving us the opportunity to really build a relationship beyond just texting or written word. Um, and so I'm wondering to what extent the, you know, dating apps these days are moving more in that direction, giving people more ability to really connect with each other on an emotional level, um, but taking the physical pressure off of it sort of in person um, from the beginning. Hmm. Jesus, have you heard that? I, I feel like during the pandemic, people are saying that that's when dating apps like Tinder really also had an explosion and that they did try to make it possible for to meet while being physically apart and get to know each other. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I have heard that. And there's definitely some work out there, especially for um, queer folks who are kind of in their shells. <clears throat> I kind of love what the speaker had to say. It's very similar to the experience for my partner and I. We're still together, but we do have an open relationship. And he's had the opportunity to explore his um, bisexual side on Tinder. And it's been very helpful as he's gotten to talk to women and men and kind of like get more in touch with himself. So I think, you know, we have talked about, of course, the risks of online dating that make a lot of sense. And of course, there's always a risk when we're uh, being vulnerable in this way and trying to get to know people. But there's also so much opportunity here to, yeah, be our little authentic selves, to kind of explore who we might be and who we are, who we might develop into. It's also an opportunity to grow closer with our friends and partners. It's a social app. There's lots of work that says, hey, friends are on, you know, using Grindr together. Women might get together and look at friends profiles and talk about people together and you know be in solidarity with each other same thing with guys it's so social as well so there's a lot of really great perks to uh, using tinder and using these apps i don't want to just think that it's all negative <laughs> there's a lot right. of stuff yeah yeah though at the same time i would love to get your thoughts on this comment jesus because it reminds me of some of the things you were saying earlier this listener writes as a black femme tinder can be a tricky space the harmful and over sexualized tropes about us make it difficult for me to be taken seriously or treated respectfully it's difficult to connect with people who don't want to put in much effort beyond arranging a booty call i've never really had an exchange on that dating app leading to a genuine connection that that is also true you, you we've definitely seen that i'm thinking of alana peck's work on this and talking basically about how people use all sorts of um you know colorblind quote-unquote excuses to perpetuate racist stereotypes or racist narratives a lot of the experiences of black women and black femmes on these apps mirrors all sorts of apps and all sorts of websites. It doesn't change in these spaces. And so that's another powerful thing about these apps. It does reflect a lot of what we're seeing off them. It reflects society in a lot of different ways. That's why these apps need to be, and Tinder has a way to go and be more proactive to kind of shift the discussion, to make things safer, to allow more um I would say equity between men and women. So it's not so geared towards men. Um, and so that women have much more pleasant time on these spaces as well. I think all that stuff has to be worked out and still has to be uh, contributed to the conversation.
Yeah. We're talking about how dating apps have, have changed dating, the upsides and the downsides, as well uh, with Tinder turning 10 next month and ushering in a lot of these apps that we have now seen over the last decade. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, Norman writes, never used a dating app, found love the old school way in a random real life encounter. Is that dead, Emily? So <laughs> the reason I ask is because, you know, one of our producers asked someone out at a bar and the response was like, wow, that's really old school. <laughs> like, and I'm wondering, is it kind of weird now, especially maybe among Gen Z, if, if you <laughs> ask somebody out in person at a bar? I mean, I am not Gen Z, but I've all of my serious relationships have, have happened IRL. Um, oh. And I don't think it's dead. I mean, it depends how much you go out, I guess. And, and you know, there are people that identify as digisexual or internet sexual where they just prefer a mediated interaction um, to a physical in-person one. But... You know, I think all of these, you know, whether you're trying to meet people online, it's always a little bit of a lottery. You're always looking for numbers and and sometimes you you meet the person through the app. Sometimes you meet them pursuing a common interest or through friends. I, I don't think that's dead, but I also don't know what it's like to be 23 or 24 right now. What do you think, Jesus? I, going to a bar or party the the way it was pre-2012 or 2009? That's a really great question. I think there's still the possibility of doing that. You know, I think, um, and, 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 you know, again, so for, for gay men, Freddie McKay's work, he really explored, you know, Tinder as kind of, it was, and it is for a lot of gay men, the dating app not the hookup app, which is, you know, very interesting when you compare it to um, Grindr, because for Tinder, it, 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 it does allow a lot more, quote unquote, nice gay guys to just make it about, you know, meeting and talking and not about sex. So I think, you know, it's still a space where you can still talk to people. And I, and I think that still, of course, possibly happens offline, but I, I don't think it has to be, you know, just the hookup app. Obviously, for a lot of queer people, Tinder is our dating app. Yeah. Well, I guess you're making me wonder, did apps change dating or did apps just amplify the changes or, or meet the needs of a changing society and a changing society's needs. <laughs> um, what do you think? That is, that feels very chicken and egg to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I absolutely think society and the creator's own biases and all that stuff influences the apps, but I also think they're catering to a population. So what we want is going to influence the apps as well. And I do think it kind of goes in this cycle in a lot of different ways. Um yeah. And I, I, I do think Tinder's going to keep changing. It's going to change and adjust just like all the other apps as as time progresses. So in the next 10 years, Tinder might be very different. Yeah. Well, really quick, Bill's comment has come in. It's on point. Bill writes, I'm a senior gay man. I'm interested in hookups, but someone who would love a partner for movies, classical music concerts, dining out, and other adult social activities, not fueled by alcohol or drugs. Does Tinder work for someone like me? And it sounds like you would say yes, is who's given the difference between Tinder and Grindr and how you've seen it be used. Same same question back to you, though, Emily. If you feel like the the apps really have changed 
the way we date, the way that it's said, or do you think that it's more complicated than that and that it has provided outlets for things that, that we needed the outlets for socially? I mean, I always say that the apps can bring us people, but it doesn't tell us what to do with them. And they can kind of set expectations. But, you know, I, I guess as I've seen, um, you know, alternative relationships forms beyond monogamy go more mainstream and, and you know, more appreciation for the spectrum of gender and all of that. What's really changed on the apps is the language. And that allows people to, you know, to to set an expectation before they meet and it's gotten so much more specific and that's actually a place where tinder's maybe been left behind a little bit as it doesn't quite offer as many options um to kind of like say who you are before you and what you're looking for before you meet somebody and it's almost i mean in the very beginning with tinder i do think there was this popular idea that all of a sudden it was going to change everything and it was going to bring hookup culture to the masses and we would all let go of our inhibitions because now we had a gps connected app and i in my experience at the time it was it was it was a lot of people being like so what are we here for <laughs> Um, and clearly there were people on there looking for really serious relationships and people that weren't. And I think in the future, the more the apps are going to be more allowed to be really specific about the nature of the encounter you want to have. Yeah. Well, let me read just a couple more comments. Uh, Ron writes, I met my wife on a Tinder match, but want to be clear that the app just helps find people to meet. When meeting a person for the first time, they were almost always very different from what I imagined. Ami writes, my granddaughter, who was not really into dating until she was well-established in her career as a teacher, met on Tinder a wonderful woman who was the love of her life. They recently bought a house together and are as good as married. The whole family loves her wife, and we all couldn't imagine life without her as part of our family. Ernest writes, meeting someone on Tinder was very interesting during the pandemic. With social distancing, many of our dates happened outside with masks on. It took us a while before we took things indoors. Fast forward about two years, and now we're traveling overseas to meet each other's extended families. I feel really fortunate that I swiped right. Well, listeners, thank you for coming through with your Tinder experiences, the whole range, the good and the very bad. Um, we really appreciate your honesty. And I really appreciate Caroline Smith for producing today's segment. And I appreciate Alina Liu, Jesus Smith, and Emily Witt for joining us today as we look back on the impact of dating apps on our lives. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, President of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. 
So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found you. How? You'll have to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hi, I'm Tyler Foggett. Join me and my colleagues as we go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds in politics for insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Make sure you're following The Political Scene, available now wherever you get your podcasts.